Hey there, listeners. Thanks for stopping by to the podcast today. Please, before you're done listening to this episode, leave us a review. If you're on Spotify, you can review now, and you can also review on Apple Podcasts. But if there's any platforms that I'm forgetting about and you can leave us a review, please do so. If you're happening to watch us on YouTube, and if you don't know, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube now, uh, please like and subscribe to the channel and share the episode as well. So thanks for stopping by, everybody, and enjoy the episode. Knowledge is Power is where you come to hear people's life experiences to learn from. So, without further ado, let's roll the intro. Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. This is your host, Maxwell. We got another great guest on for today's episode. So if you could go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great. Absolutely. Thanks. I want to say thanks again for having me on here. So my name is John Bellmore. I am the producing sales manager for Embrace Home Loans in our only retail location in Rhode Island. Uh, The company itself is quite large. We're nationally licensed to have 60 or 65 branches across the U.S. Um, I've been with the company for going on eight years now, um, and I'm happy to be here. That's exciting time. Yeah, very cool. Well, it's great having you on. You are the second mortgage person, I guess, mortgage guy I've had on the podcast. Uh, So, But the last time I had somebody on was almost two years ago now. So obviously much different market. Yeah. Than it was two years ago. Uh, and we're going to get into mortgages later in the episode. But to start off, why don't you tell everybody your life story and what brought you to where you are now being a mortgage lender? Sure. Um, so life story. I, I mean, I guess we can kind of start off with, you know, Rhode Island and, you know, geographic and stuff. So I grew up here in Rhode Island uh, in North Kingstown. As I mentioned, I'm working in East Greenwich. So it's pretty close to home. Um, I have kind of bounced around all over the place. So, you know, born and raised in in Warwick, moved to North Kingstown in the late 80s. Um, We were living underneath TF Green Airport, essentially. And so every five minutes, you know, a plane would be taking off or coming back down. And, you know, it was a running joke in the house where everybody knew if you were on the phone, you'd have to put the phone away for like, you know, 30 seconds until the plane landed. And then you can come back into the conversation. Nobody ever skipped a beat. It was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, so it was just too noisy and we wanted to get away from that. So we moved to North Kingstown in the late eighties, um, with my sister my mom and my dad, I went to North Kingstown high school after high school, I went to college, um, but I didn't want to go to URI. I wanted to get a little bit farther away. Um, and so I ended up applying to Penn state, Linden state up in, um, in, I believe it's Vermont. Um, and then also Florida Institute of Technology down in Melbourne, Florida. And that's kind of where I ultimately uh, decided I wanted to go. Um, so I went to college for meteorology, um, not the broadcast side of things, but strictly math science. Um, and it was an amazing experience, you know, and I've always been kind of interested in, in math and, and science my whole life. Hurricane Bob in 91, um, if you remember, was what really kind of got me more interested in the weather, or I think that was probably the starting point. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where everything took off. So I went to college for meteorology, environmental science, um, did that for a little bit. When I got home, I, you know, from school, I didn't really know what avenue I wanted to go. Um, So my aunt was actually working for Channel 12 with Tony Petraka, and I ended up going to intern uh, with them. I think that was that must have been August of 2006, somewhere in that time frame. And I did that for about a year until I got my first television job. Um, and so that kind of started, you know, the whole, <laughs> the, my whole path forward into TV, which I did for, you know, 10 years or so. Um, my agenda with schooling was always go to get like a research job or, or something in that capacity. And, you know, a lot of my friends ended up doing that. 
Um, but I just kind of fell into TV and, and it was kind of fun when I was young. And, I, and so I ran with it. And that's kind of my life story regarding that. In, in terms of why I left, um, I, I always like to use the adage, you know, most older people will know what I'm saying, you know, today's millennials and everything get their, their news from their phone 24 seven, but you know, you would turn on the TV at, you know, five, six AM or 10, 11 o'clock at night, you know, it's weekends, it's holidays. And so that's when I was working. And so that kind of explains why I, why I left the business. Um, mm. It also changed quite a bit. Um, my first job was out in my first like real job was out in central Oregon, which was really cool. Um, but it was very bottom of the bo bottom markets. So I had to kind of work my way up, but the way that the system works is that, you know, there's generally three TV stations per market. There's about 188 markets and there's usually somewhere between three and five jobs, weather jobs per state, you know, per station. So if you do the math on that, there's only, you know, there's less than a thousand jobs in the entire United States. So mm -hmm. it's, it's very difficult to get anywhere. And when you bounce from market that has a really high number, which means it's not, you know, very low population or whatever. It's not like New York or Boston. When you jump and try to get to those higher markets for more pay, better, you know, exposure, you, you have to start from the bottom. And the people that are in those positions already are not, you know, keen on leaving unless something drastic happened. So it just was something that I made my way all the way to um, Westchester County. I was working for News 12 Connecticut. I, I was working for Fox 25 up in Boston. Uh, and it was kind of like the plateau. There wasn't really anything else that I could do to, you know, further that career um, unless I became the chief. And that was probably going to take 25 years, you know, and that's not anything that I wanted to do. So I ended up leaving that. I moved back. Um, I was in Rhode Island at this time. I was actually in Newport, but um, I started to work for a software as a service company, which got me into uh, sales mode. Um, and so that kind of transitioned into I like sales, but I don't like what I'm doing currently with it. And I knew a, a friend. I was like, I got, I was in, living in Newport, driving down to, you know, Wyoming or Hope Valley, Rhode Island. And every day it was, you know, an hour each way. It was just like something I didn't really want to continue to do. I had done that for five years. Um, so I wanted something closer to home. I was talking to somebody who worked at Embrace Home Loans and they said, why don't you just apply and, and see where it goes? And so that's the story. I, I did that in 2015 made my jump from you know a, a w2 salaried position um to something that was essentially all commission it was a really big decision but i'm glad that i uh i'm glad that i went and made that jump so that's kind of yeah. my life story now i'm here <laughs> yeah well that's a great life story very interesting to go from you know being a weatherman to mortgages which is pretty cool um but uh yeah i mean let's talk let's talk all right. So I, I got to ask this question, right? And I'm sure you get this question a lot when it comes to being a weatherman or, or being on the news or something like that. How accurate is the movie, The Anchorman? <laughs> um, I think that for the 70s, probably pretty accurate, right? <laughs> when I was there, um, it wasn't as it wasn't as uh, bad, as, I guess, as they make it seem like, you know? Yeah. So there weren't battles and fields in the cities with futuristic guns <laughs> and between rival news networks. No, but the funny thing is, is um, at least at my first job, um, my first job in Central Oregon, we had it was a brand new station. So the station didn't exist before; it was just NBC. And yep. when that was the the existing, I think they called I don't remember what the call sign was, but it was an NBC station. And the station that I joined. They literally built the building, bought the you know the advertising and broadcasting rights, and they hired a crew. And then, boom, one day, a new station was up. So the NBC station didn't like that, right? And so there was a bit of um, you know back and forth that went in that scenario. But I would say generally, you know, everybody was pretty pretty easygoing, especially as you start to get into the bigger markets. You know, when I was working in you know the greater New York City area, southwestern Connecticut, over up in Boston and stuff, everybody knew each other. They generally were, you know, they were hanging out. They they all went to this, you know, did the same things, and it was pretty kosher. Everybody was mm. was getting along. Yeah. And did you say when you were out in Oregon, what was the company you worked for for out in Oregon? Was that Fox as well? No. So I kind of bounced around a bit. Um, 
the company in Oregon was KOHD. It was an ABC affiliate. Okay. Um, I don't. I actually don't even think they're they're there anymore. Um, hmm. Which is sad. interesting. Was <laughs> yeah. Was was there a difference like in company culture? Like, because obviously, like it's very different from national news and and whatnot, right? Just from watching from the outside in. Um, is there like a difference in how the companies sort of run on the back end? that you saw from like the ABC affiliate to the Fox one? Um, I don't think so, but also keep in mind that I wasn't in the reporting side of things. Yeah. Right. So there wasn't, there wasn't any sort of like, you know, when you watch TV today, ABC, NBC, Fox, you know, there's, I don't want to say there's an agenda, but there's a lean to, to you know, you kind of choose which station you like. Cause there's small, there's a sort of a lean. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't experience that because I wasn't really doing a whole lot of the reporting. Yeah. Uh, you know, weather is weather, no matter where you go. Right. And so that's kind of, that was my world. And I kind of stuck with it. Yeah. Well, the, I think the great thing about the local channels is you don't get that as much, you know, with the lean, like you might see it occasionally, but it's not as glaring as it is on a national level, you know, cause there are people that you know, in Rhode Island that live 30 minutes from you or less, you know what I mean? So like, it's, it's more of like a local feeling, you know what I mean? And, um, I think it's like, I listen, I'm 21 years old. I do actually, sometimes will get up and turn on the the news in the morning, you know, (laughs) not a lot of kids my age do that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty amazing. Uh, so can you explain like the process? So, uh, your your routine, like when you got into the office, you know, when you were working in that industry, like what went on, you know, from when you got there to when you're on air. I'm curious you to hear that when process. I was doing the weather stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, geez. Um, so it was <laughs> it was early. I would uh, I would normally work the shift from it would like be two to eleven, right? Two in the morning to eleven in the morning. So I would get up be at work by two, two thirty, something, something of that nature. Um, we were online or on air at, I want to say it was five when we first started and then it dropped to four. Um, so it was very early in the morning. Um, but I would, you know, I would get in and I would look at all of the computer data that was coming in. So each station has proprietary systems that at least back in the day, I don't know what it's like now. I've been out of the game for a while, but Back in the day, you would have these, uh, a station would buy a certain service provider's data, right? It's, it's like anything else. You could buy your base data, but then if you want lightning on top of that, it's an extra package, like it's an extra add-on. Mm. If you want to have your own radar, that's an extra add-on. So there's things that you have to purchase. And if the station doesn't have money to do so, then it may be a slim package and you get a slim report. Um, but what I generally did was I went, went in and I would be looking at all of the data from outside of what we purchased. And then I would look at the data from the software and systems that we did purchase. I would make my own forecast. And then I would see what the forecast was from the automated systems. And if there was something that I missed, or if the thing was interpreting something a little bit differently, then I can kind of massage what it, what I wanted to put out into the world. I also looked at what my teammates were doing the night before, and earlier in that day, because, you know, generally speaking, weather is trending, right? Moves from the Western side over to the Eastern side. That's just kind of how the systems work. Um, in Oregon, it was a little bit different because we don't have radar across the ocean. So I was right up against the Cascades. And so I wouldn't see weather on radar come until it hit the coastline. You know, a lot of the radar that was in central Oregon would have to go up and over the mountains before it actually saw anything. And so if there's a low level storm or something like that over in Eugene or Portland, I wouldn't really see that unless I was using their systems or their radar. And so it was very difficult um, to really get the computers to read it accurately. You would have to know um, based on where you were and how the mountains played into, you know, the, the terrain and topography, geography of how those storms are going to come through the mountains and, and end up in my local market. So it was a bit of a, I don't want to say a guessing game, but you really had to know how it was going to interact. And without living there for a while and knowing what the storm, how the storms behave, you, you have to put your spin on it. So it took a little bit, but that's kind of how my morning went. I would do my forecasting. Mm. 
once I had my forecast in place, then it was a graphics game. Like I would have to go and make all these graphics, put all this, this words together. And I don't have to make multiple, multiple different types of forecasts um, as far as like video. So most of my stuff was live. So I would go in and I would do a minute and a half and then it would be, you know, a 15 second bump or a tease. Then I would have to do another 30 second uh, tease. And then I would do my three minute forecast. And that was the half hour, right? And you would do that from 4.30 to 5 to 5.30, 5.30 to 6.00, 6.30 to 7.00. And then we would do bump-ins for GMA, which would be Good Morning America because we were an ABC station. So mm-hmm. um, that's kind of how the morning went. After that, you were generally helping the midday and the evening meteorologists to get their stuff ready to go um, and making sure that your information was accurate and easily accessible. Um, when the station started to collapse in say 2009 or so, that's when they started to like in 2008, when, when the housing market crashed and it was, it was just like kind of really bad. Everybody started to lose a whole lot of money. Um, that's when they started to turn everybody into what they deemed as multimedia journalists. So I started off as the Monday through Friday morning weather guy, right? I was the, the weather anchor. Then I was the morning weather anchor, and I was also doing the news anchoring, right? So I would jump from doing the weather, I'd have 30 seconds to breathe, then I'd have to go over and sit in the anchor chair and read next to a co-anchor. And then when all that was done, I'd have to go and I'd have to do a story, you know? So I would have something for the afternoon that I recorded in the morning. It was really, really bad um, at the very end because everybody was doing everything with very little uh, support. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I, I'm curious to hear also like, so the, so the data you had to collect like for um, the temperature, right? How would you guys predict like what the temperature was going to be throughout the week? Was it mostly data based off of like, like weather in the past or like, cause obviously you can read the temperature, what it is right now, but how you guys, how do you guys predict what it's going to be a, a 15 days from now? Cause sometimes you see forecasts that far out. Curious to hear how you collect that data. Yeah, so anything that's beyond four days is kind of a guessing game. When you when you when you try to pinpoint a temperature, mm-hmm. right? So if you're if you're gonna 15 days from now, you're gonna say the max or the high is 55. That's you're shooting in the dark, right? It's just not gonna yeah. happen. You can say you know temperature is probably gonna be in the 50s, right? Yeah. But you're not gonna know exactly what the temperature are. What okay. In terms of the extended forecasts, a lot of the extended forecasts all came from computer algorithms that were made by people way smarter than me, right? So it was okay. just my determined, you know, it was me out there determining how this was going to come about over the course of X amount of days, right? They actually, there, there's many, many, many different forecast models. So you would generally choose your top three or five or whatever it may be, and you would see how they all jive if you've mm. ever seen um you've ever seen the spaghetti plots for a hurricane map yeah i like like all the different directions it could go in right so they normally yeah. do a cone of uncertainty right and then in that cone of uncertainty you'll have 20 different lines going in all these different squiggly directions the general direction is that way right but some forecasts pull it right some forecasts pull it left six or seven go right down the middle so that's more of the consensus Right. And so when you have your three or four forecasts for five, 10, 15 days out, you're going to have the consensus being a certain few degrees. And that's where you kind of just usually take an average or you figure out what's what's happening that way. You know, if six of them are saying it's going to be 50, you know, between 50 and 56 and one of them says 75, you're probably going to toss the outlier out and you're going to say, you know, it's going to be somewhere around 54. Right. Because 15 yeah. days out, no one's going to say, oh, you said it was going to be 54 and it was only 52, you know, so it's just general. Yeah. So it's almost like a scatter plot, like like how you have all these different temperatures that happen on a specific date. But there's always a, a linear a line going through the middle that says this is what the average is and this is what it's most likely going to be. But there was always outliers sort of pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, OK, much. yeah. Cool. All right. That's pretty interesting. I've always been interested to hear like the back end of what goes on, you know, with with anchoring and 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 being a meteorologist. So let's go back to college. Right. Yeah. So what 
sort of things like what were the classes that you had to learn or or get into when you were in college? Like what were some of the topics? Oh, geez. Um, I took all sorts of stuff in school. Um, so my bachelor's degree was environmental science and meteorology. And mm-hmm. then I got a, my master's degree from Mississippi State in applied meteorology. Um, okay. That's when I kind of said, okay, I'm going to actually, when I got my master's, I was, I think it was in 2011 is when I started. And then I got my degree in 2013. So again, this is already 10 years ago. And so I've been out of the game for a little while, but when I did that, I was really putting my foot down. I'm going to go in this head first and I'm really going to do the meteorology thing for a, for a while. Uh, it only lasted two years because I didn't, there wasn't really a whole lot of opportunity out there. Um, but as far as schooling, you know, I had to do advanced mathematics, uh, physics, environmental science courses. Um, you know, there was a lot of humanities courses in regards to, um, you know, where people came from and where they're living now and how their geography affects where they're living, like coastal studies, um, like hydrology, there's a like a lot of stuff in, in that field um, that I studied for my undergrad. And then my master's degree was essentially just taking those top level classes and, and putting an extra spin on them, right? So now we're trying to apply these things, um, give us examples, write papers, uh, show us experiments, you know, and do these things in real life. And so that, that's what the master's degree did. All right. Yeah. Interesting. What was the, like when you got out of college, right? A lot of guests, I'd like to talk about college. Um, When you left college, what was like the biggest thing you left that you learned about yourself or about what you wanted to do with your life? I know that get that's a pretty deep question, but like what's (laughs) something that you learned that you really didn't think you would have if it weren't for college, like forget about like the meteorology stuff and, and whatnot. Um, that's kind of a hard question. So when I left college, what did I, what did I learn from it? I guess is yeah. Like what was the biggest lesson that you learned from college, you know, going to college that you don't think you would have learned if you, if you didn't go to college. That's a tough one. Yeah. Like, like some people talk about how it taught them to be independent or it made them mature or made them what realize what they didn't want to do with their lives or, or, you know, different things like that. Yeah. Um, I liked college for the experience, right? So I, I guess, let me preface that I chose specifically to go to a Institute of technology, Mm -hmm. which was, in my head, at least a college that I had to take really seriously, right? There was not tons of partying. There Mm -hmm. was, you know, it was 85% guys. It was not something that you would go there and spend X amount of dollars to kind of waste your, I don't want to say waste your time because it sounds bad, but I specifically chose to not go to like, you know, Arizona state, right? Where I could have had a huge party school. I could have done that great school. I'm sure I don't know nothing about it. But I didn't go to college to do that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, I I think that I learned from college to really appreciate the opportunity, what I was, you know, what my parents had helped me to accomplish. Because if, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have been able to do this. Um, and if I don't think that if I had the experience or opportunity to go to this kind of school, I wouldn't have... I really don't know what to say. I, I don't. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to jump and do something that I really loved as a kid, um, mm-hmm. and take it take it to its end level. You know yeah. what I mean? But the absolutely. The funny thing about Florida Tech was that I, it was they were teaching you stuff that was theoretical, right? So I would I would sit in my physics three class, and they're teaching you about theories and algorithms and stuff that were not proven. Like for one thing that I, I always like to say to my friends that I would like to go back to the school and sit in some of these classes, but not take any tests, not have to take any notes, just listen, 
right? And because the stuff that they were talking about was mind blowing. Um, I remember like one of the questions on an exam was how fast do you have to run to put a 25 foot pole in a 20 foot bar? Right? It sounds like a stupid question, right? But it all has to deal with the speed of light and how, you know, things will expand and contract as speed goes up because of E equals MC squared type equations and that sort of thing. So like just thinking about these were like, it was really cool, completely mind blowing how smart some of the kids that I went to school, I call them kids because it was a while ago, but how smart these guys were. I mean, these are NASA scientists now. These are, you know, engineers at, at you know, all these crazy schools, a lot of like my roommate was a, a a pilot, you know, so he he's now flying all sorts of planes and doing crazy stuff like that. So, I mean, I think the experience of, of college was cool. It's not for everybody. I don't think that I would go and do this career path again, just knowing what I know now, I would probably go into finance, um, business, mm -hmm. something of, of that. Mine, mine was more of a hobby or, or um, something that I really liked that I, I went head first in. I want to do this. I've wanted to do this forever, so I'm going to do it. And that's why I say, you know, it's I'm grateful for my parents that they afforded me the opportunity to do so. I don't think I would follow this same career path again, um, but it's very cool to speak about. It was a great experience, um, but I would go into something that I think is more universal um, if I had to do that all over again. I hope that answers the question. That absolutely answers my question. You know, the big thing about this podcast, the the opening tune is, you know, the new one that I added to newer episodes is, you know, it's where you come to hear people's life experiences to learn from. Right. Yeah. So that that was that was a perfect answer. And I thank you for sharing that. So now we're going to get into something. Uh, what you do now with Embrace you know, mortgages. Uh, and we could get into a very deep conversation about all the different types of mortgages and whatnot. And I think it's a good, I, I think we should talk about it, especially today's market, what's going on with interest rates and whatnot. So we're going to transition to Embrace. So let's start off with the company Embrace. There's a lot of different mortgage companies out there that exist. What makes Embrace special? So the biggest thing that I've been with Embrace for going on eight years, and there's a reason I haven't left, right? The people here are awesome. Uh, it is a, what I would consider a medium-sized company. It is locally owned and operated. Uh, it was started in 1983, if I'm not mistaken, as AFS, which is Advanced Financial Services. Um, so we ended up, we started off doing not me, obviously, I wasn't there at that time, but they started off doing um, like second mortgages and things of that nature. And they transitioned into doing the more uh, traditional loans, if you will, like the conventional, the FHA and everything. Um, the FHA and and these government loans were not, A, they, they generally didn't exist and weren't very popular. Everyone was doing these conventional loans back in the day. So we were one of the first ones to do that. Um, and that just kind of gives you an idea of what, you know, what we do today. We, we are generally the first people, our first company to introduce new products. We're always evolving. We offer a lot of specialty programs that you're not going to find at other businesses. Um, we're very competitive on interest rate. You know, there, there are just a lot of good benefits here. It's a great learning. It's a great place to learn. Um, Embraces. I don't want to say divided, that's not the right word, but uh, is comprised of two different divisions. So one division is what we would call our direct consumer platform. Um, and so if you could imagine seeing a commercial on television or on the radio or whatever it may be, you dial an 800 number wherever you are in the United States and you get somebody in a call center who is nationally licensed to do business for whatever you're calling it out. So Embrace has that sort of a platform where we are a nationally licensed company. We have a you know a whole building full of full of loan officers that are licensed nationally who will help you do purchases, refinances, whatever is needed, right? So that's direct to consumer, where the company itself advertises and then you answer the phone call. I started there. I consider that a college for loan officers. When I joined Embrace, I knew nothing about the mortgage business other than that I had just bought my first house, and my my loan officer was incredible. Not it was he wasn't from Embrace, but he got me thinking about the business. 
because when I when I go and do something, I like to learn everything about it so I don't make any mistakes. I like to kind of be an expert in things that I'm trying to do. And so I was asking this loan officer all the questions I could think of, you know, okay, the interest rate is this, but why is it that, right? Why does this program require 3% when this program requires five? If I, if I move this lever, why does it move these other three levers? Like I needed to know all of that stuff. And so that kind of really piqued my interest because it affected me personally. And my loan officer was so good that when my friend who was working at Embrace said, hey, why don't you just apply? Uh, that's what I did. And I was like, okay, perfect. And so I started on that direct consumer platform and they have processors, they have underwriters in operations, then they have um, assistant loan officers, they have junior loan officers, and you generally would get placed on a team. And there's a team leader with maybe 10 or so other loan officers around you. You have weekly meetings about, you know, I guess I'm kind of jumping the gun there. You, you went through about six months of studying because you have to pass licensing tests and do all this other stuff. You have to pass the exams. It's not like anybody can just start mm -hmm. tomorrow, right? So I did that and learned beyond what my personal mortgage taught me what I needed to do. And then the learning environment was never ending in that direct platform. You know, you're in a, I don't want to call, call it a call center, but you're in a, a, a room with a whole bunch of different people and you're constantly learning and it's a team environment. Everybody's there to help each other. And it was, it was awesome. So that's kind of how um, I liked Embrace and, and learned about Embrace is they're, they're constantly looking to evolve, constantly looking to help you out. And I got to a point where, okay, I think I know enough to kind of start this on my own. And now that's where I'm at today. I, mm -hmm. We have offices all over the United States. And so I said to Embrace Management and say, hey, I want to start a branch in Rhode Island. Let's do this. And so that's where we are today. And so now I'm actively recruiting to get more loan officers from either internally or externally to come here and learn and work with Embrace. So that's that's what I really like about Embrace. Cool. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I want to talk about the process of becoming a, a mortgage uh, broker uh, as well. You know, I recently got my real estate license. My license is right here if you're watching <laughs> on camera. Uh, and I got my license in October, took the class. Uh, it's 45 hours a class. Um, and it's really interesting. I think my teacher was great um, for the content she was provided and told to teach. Uh, but when you're getting your real estate license, you're really not taught a lot about how to be a real estate agent. It is a lot of verbiage and things that really you don't use. I don't know if I can get in trouble for saying this. Who knows? <laughs> we'll see. Somebody tells me to take it down. I'll, I don't know. But uh, I feel like when I got my license, I could have been better prepared with the class. Right. Uh, and it seems to be a recurring case in college, too. It's like you learn some things, but are you really going to use these things in the future? You know what I mean? It, it's not just real estate school. It's a lot of other things, you know, like in high school, like they teach you how to be an employee and not how to do your own thing and be an entrepreneur. Right. Um, so I'm curious to hear how the mortgage, you know, classes that you had to take and then the exam pre actually prepared you to be in the mortgage industry. So I would sort of agree with what you're saying, right? And so when you take your mortgage, you're studying for the mortgage licensing tests, there are, there's a universal test that you have to take. And then each state will, will, I shouldn't say will, can apply stronger testing, right? So there, most of the states have the universal. And so when you're taking these um, these study courses and everything else, you are, it's, it's kind of like a college class. I don't remember how many hours it was, but I studied for six months before I took a single test with like 80 questions on it, right? Mm. And you have to pass or you can't take it again for X amount of time. And you only get three chances and that's it, right? So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty legit. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as how the mortgage world actually relates to the testing and everything, the testing is really how to stay out of trouble more than anything else. That's, I think that's very accurate with real estate too. You're, you're completely right. I think, I think you're, you're completely right. I probably should have mentioned that as well. Yes. Yeah. It, it's yeah. a lot of like, okay, if you screw up, it's going to cost you a thousand dollars and then it's, you know, don't do it again. If you do yeah. it again, now it's 10,000 and it's, you know, now it goes on your license and, you know, who is the commissioner of the mortgage world for this state? And 
you know, every every state has their own nuances. And so all of those things I think are good to know. But if you're not intentionally trying to mess up or or do anything criminal, I don't think you really need to know that stuff. Right. Mm. I'm not it would be almost like forcing everybody to be a lawyer for, for no reason. You know, you know what I mean? You only need yeah, to really, yeah. unless you get in trouble, you don't really need to know what a speeding ticket's going to cost you. Right. Yep. Don't speed and you won't, and you won't need to know that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, or not cool, but interesting to hear how that <laughs> relates. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, Oh, this, I was just going to say the second half of everything was, which I liked better is learning about the history of mortgages, because there's a lot of things that go into how mortgages are put together today. Um, so the conservators, so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, what they mean, FHA and VA, what they are and, and how they help people, um, how they're different, how they're similar. Um, there's a lot of history. Um, so like, you know, for lack of a better uh, way to explain it, like, you know, there was segregation back in the day. There was disparaged people that, you know, were told they couldn't buy houses or, you know, they were redlined in some way, which means essentially carved out of being able to afford homes or, or being even allowed to buy them in the first place. So there's a lot of history that goes into that sort of thing as well. Um, Embrace actually started a program here called Wider Path Home that will teach loan officers and anybody else, I guess, who is interested about how housing has manipulated people in the very beginning and how we're trying to change that today and make it more equal opportunity and everything. Um, so I, as far as, you know, yeah, there, there's, <laughs> there's definitely tests about how much is it going to cost if you screw up and who runs the program and, and everything like that. But a lot of it also goes back into really making sure that you know that everybody should be treated equal you want to understand why things happened back then so we don't repeat ourselves in the future and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, as far absolutely. as the testing, it doesn't prepare you. Out. Like you, you can't learn from a book how to sell. You no. Know, you have to go and do it. You have to discover. That's something I'm discovering myself as being a real estate agent is uh, you can watch. I've watched dozens of YouTube videos on you know, how to like what to do in cold calling, what to call when you're calling a for sale by owner or, you know, an expired listing or a withdrawn or things like that. But you sort of discover your style as you're going about what you're doing and what works for you might not work for somebody else. For me, I'm sort of discovering, you know, there's a there's a lot of there's you know, I like to be straight to the point, you know what I mean? And I feel like some people would appreciate that. And some people would not really appreciate that. You know what I mean? So like, it's something that I've been discovering throughout real estate, the limited time that I've been in it, but you're completely right. You can't learn in a book how to sell. You can learn like strategies and like, like ways to help discover what's going to work for you. Right. Like I'm reading, um, a book called Millionaire Real Estate Agent by Gary Keller right now. It's a really interesting book and it, and it and it sort of dives into yourself more than it does selling strategy. You know, what is your why is a big part of the book. Like why? Why do you want to be a real estate agent? Why why are you doing this? Why? You know, yeah. it's a very simple question, but have you ever really thought like why? You know what I mean? And it and it made me start to think a little bit more like, oh, well, why? am I doing this? Like, I thought I know why, but is that really why? <laughs> like I've been saying why a lot. <laughs> and but, that why um, I'm sure will evolve over time as well. It, it exactly. did. Exactly. It certainly did. My, my why I was doing this when I first started was because I hated my job and I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. And then when I actually started to learn what I was doing and how to do it really well, the why became, because I want to help others, right? This is a complicated world. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a very important thing to know how to do well. Yes. And, you know, I want to help guide people through. Well, it was funny. It's, it's great about this podcast as well, because just talking to people like you and, and 53 other people plus that I've talked to throughout this podcast is I've unlocked things just from talking. You know what I mean? From myself on 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 how to handle different things and how to and how to run my business and, and how to, you know, better myself as a person so it's it's and and what's really interesting i was talking to another realtor the other day um who has been a realtor for a little while but they always like hated 
cold calling, right? All of their leads were coming from, uh, you know, inner circle, you know, uh, sphere of influence, you know, whatever, like people that they know. And I was telling her and I'm just like, what do you like to do? You know, what do you like to do? She's like, well, I mean, like, do you like to help people? She's like, of course, I love to help people. I'm like, don't think that you're calling this for sale by owner because you want to make a commission. Think about it. You're going to make them half a million dollars richer when you sell their house for them. Think about think about it like that. That's how I think about it. Like, I want to help these people. If they're in a situation where they need to get rid of their house or they need to buy a house, that's why I'm there to help them. And that's truly why I want to do it. I'm not making yeah. that up. You know, so what you're I mean? talking about relational rather than transactional. Exactly. That's exactly it's it's all about relationships. All of exactly. it. Exactly. I'm not doing this for a commission. I'm doing this because I want to help you. I truly I want to make, you know, if you're selling your house, I want to help you get more money. And if you're buying a house, I want to help you settle down and make your life easier. You know what I mean? So it, it's it's and it's a mindset thing. And then you you see that with how how they're you, it when you you can see how despairingly obvious a realtor is when they're not thinking like that and they exist and you can see it right away. There are people that exist that are like that. And it's very obvious. Once you know what you're looking for, it's very obvious, obvious of how they think behind closed doors or what's going on behind their head. And it is because they want to make a commission and that's yeah. why they're helping you. And if, not you gonna don't say, have that, if you don't have that proper mindset, yes, you know, the barrier to entry in our world is fairly low, right? So let's say compared to becoming a doctor or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. so you can become a real estate agent or a loan officer fairly easily. When the rates were super low and the housing market was wild, wildly open, right? There was a lot of real estate agents that got in to make quick money. It's a wrong reason, and loan officers as well. It's the wrong reason to do it. And mm -hmm. so we're going to start to see a lot of people leave the industry, I think, and that's going to help us. That's for the better, right? There's a lot of people that got into this for the wrong reasons. Um, Precisely. For, you know, as far as like clients go, make sure you talk to your loan officer and your, and your agent to make sure that they're a good fit for you. I, you know, ask mm -hmm. them those important questions about how they feel about their business, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes somebody who's quick to the point, a realtor that's quick to the point and just be like, this is how much you can sell your house for. This is what we need to do to get it sold. Let's do it. Sometimes it's better to work with somebody like that. You know what I mean? That's just the type of person you are, you know, but you're absolutely right. It's a relationships industry and it's all about building trust and, and knowing the person that you want to work with. Right. Um, but I want to get into a little bit more about mortgages here. So sure. obviously right now, mortgage rates have gone up. Uh, they peaked out 7% a couple of months ago. They went down and some people are saying they might go back up. I don't really know. I'm not a mortgage lender. That's why you guys exist. <laughs> so, um, but first I want to go into like the history. So let's say like, like I like to use the example, like my grandparents bought a house in like 1974. Right. And the interest rates back then were 12%, right? Like, but the house also cost them only 50 grand. <laughs> right. Right. But I'm, I'm talking, yeah, actually it was 20. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but like, in terms of the interest rates and and whatnot, historically they're not insanely high. Is that a fair uh, accus or a fair point to make? Yeah, to, the answer to that question is yes. They they yes. were high up to I think believe I think they were up to eighteen percent or maybe even a little bit higher at some point. Mm -hmm. So six and a quarter, you know, is sixty six percent less. <laughs> yeah, historically they're not insanely high. Obviously couple of years ago, you know, they were low and that was great. It was it, a lot of people could afford houses and it was great. But historically right now, a 6%, five to 6% interest rate isn't anything crazy. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's a good thing because it may stop them from getting into something where they really couldn't afford it. And it may not have been a good financial decision for them as well. You know, even at a 2%, 3% interest rate. Um, but let's get into the different types of loans because a lot of people think oh i'm just gonna go get a loan and buy a house and bada bing bada boom for some yep. cases that might that might be the case you know for people who have money but you know let's talk about like the the most basic type of mortgage which is what i just talked about a conventional loan 
Can you just explain like in, in depth about what a conventional loan is and how it works? Yeah. So there are many, 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 many different loan programs out there. When you say a conventional conforming loan, that is usually something that will be purchased by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, right? So there's uh, conforming and non, well, there's there's qualified mortgages and non-qualified mortgages, right? So a non-qualified mortgage essentially just means that it doesn't fit into the box of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, which are the conservators uh, from FHFA, and they're going to be the ones that are going to buy all of these mortgages from the lenders. Right. And so they are essentially providing us with capital in order to continue to do our business as well. And so when they buy a loan, it has to fit their guidelines. Right. So a conventional there, there are things called matrices or mat a matrix per program. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have their matrix. It's, you know, I think there's 20, 26 or 28 different qualifying factors. Right. Is it a single family home, multi-unit townhouse or condo? Is it going to be owner occupied a second home or an investment property? Is it going to be um, X amount of dollars, right? I think 726,200, 726,200 is the new conforming maximum. Once you get above that from an amount being borrowed, you get into a jumbo loan. Um, so it, it that can also vary by state. So they have high balance conforming loans. So like New York is very expensive. New Jersey is very expensive. There are some homes that if you borrow more than that 726 number, it's still a conforming loan. It's just high balance. So there are many different ways to look at the different loan programs. Whenever somebody applies with me and they say, okay, I'd like to buy a home loan. I plug in their home rather. I plug in all of their information and then I click a button that essentially shows me 200 different options, right? But it organizes them usually by interest rate of which one is the best for, you know, or which three are the best for this particular client based on what I've entered into the system, right? And so that's kind of how that works. Conventional mortgages are what you could consider more, I don't want to say private because it's not, it's not a private loan by any means, but you qualify on your own, right? It's not subsidized by the government in any sort of way. Um, qualifications are usually a little bit stronger, right? They want you to have hmm. a 700 score or better. They do have, you know, you can get a loan with a credit score of 620, right? But they don't, the terms are going to be terrible. If you have lower credit scores, that's usually where people turn towards government loans. They will allow you for you know, lower down payment, lower credit scores, maybe some uh, derogatory credit history, late payments, whatever it may be. Um, so conventional loans are a bit more strict. Usually um, they have less fees. So in order to use a government loan, because they're subsidized, you have to contribute to that slush fund, right? So the FHA has an upfront mortgage insurance premium. It's a certain percentage of however much you're borrowing. Under the VA, unless you have some sort of a service-connected disability, you will have to pay a funding fee, right? And so that is usually on top of your closing costs or prepaids for taxes and insurance and that sort of thing. And of course, any down payment that you may be putting on. So whenever I look at clients, I usually start off with either a private investor and put them next to a conforming loan, right? And then I'll throw an FHA on the side. And I usually look at these three options and usually private investor, you know, one or two of those or a conventional loan are the better options. Um, just because of the, the cost structure, the interest rate, usually the mortgage insurance is a lot less or non-existent. Um, and so those things are usually the reason why I would start off with plan A on a conventional and then plan B would be the fallback on FHA. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A few weeks ago, I went into a class and learned a little bit about FHA loans and what's going on with that and who it might benefit. So that FHA is something that a lot of people, I feel like, don't really know about unless they're really looking for a house or refinancing or something like that. Um, but let's go into uh, an adjustable rate mortgage, which I find are very interesting. So can you explain okay. what an adjustable rate mortgage is and how they work? Yeah. So an adjustable rate mortgage is just as it sounds. It's it's a mortgage that you have that has a rate that will adjust after a certain period of time. And so we, at my company, we do what's called a hybrid ARM, ARM, adjustable rate mortgage. And hybrid is because it's normally fixed for a certain period of time, right? So we have a three, five, seven, or a 10 
hybrid arm. And so it's fixed for the first three, five, seven, or 10 years. And then at that point, it either adjusts every six months or every year, depending on the program that's chosen. And there are limitations to it. There's normally like, you know, a, a five point maximum, right? So if you start, if, if you have a, an adjustable rate mortgage, you would say, let's say interest rate is 6%, whatever it may be, right? In your, your ceiling, which is one of the numbers when you get an arm, would be a five. So you do six plus five is 11, right? So that's the most it could ever go, right? It's, it's capped at that point. And it's not going to jump to 11 your first year. It'll, there, you know, there's yearly ceilings on, on these things or yearly caps. Usually it's 1% or 2%. And so it will slowly inch up, but only if the index that it's tracking increases. So most arms will track up and also down. So if you're getting an adjustable rate mortgage, you definitely want to ask your lender if the interest rates decrease for any reason, does it also decrease my adjustable rate mortgage? Because some lenders will you know, say, okay, here's your fixed period. And then as interest rates start to climb, it follows that if the mortgage rates drop, they may not drop you. You may just be stagnant, right? So it goes back. It, it's, it's almost like you're raising the bar, raising your ceiling, and it just kind of stays flat. So why would somebody use in it? Why would somebody get an adjustable rate mortgage over a conventional or FHA? So typically adjustable rate mortgages um, have a much lower rate, right? So um, we are, put, I don't want to say pushing, wrong word. Uh, we are showing advertising adjustable rate mortgages right now because the idea is that generally speaking, interest rates are probably going to fall, right? So if you get a 30-year fixed interest rate right now at six and a quarter, you can refinance that, right? Or you can do a five-year arm at four and a half, right? So you're still fixed at four and a half for five years. And if interest rates start to fall, then your interest rate will fall with the adjustable rate mortgage anyway. If they don't fall, then you have a really good interest rate. If they start to climb, then you would want to refinance out of that thing, right? So they're usually for short-term periods. You're essentially betting on the market. I, if you know that you're going to move in five years, or if you're going to, you know, sell your house and and do something like that, you're transferring companies, moving out of state, you're, you're downsizing, whatever it may be. If you have a plan within that certain time period where you know you're going to exit that loan for some reason, that's a really good, a really good thing to have because you can benefit with that lower interest rate. If you don't want the full risk of an adjustable rate mortgage, there's something called a buy down, right? So you can take your 30 year fixed loan. If you're purchasing a home and interest rate is 6.25%, throwing a number in the air, you, if you can get the seller to pay your buy down costs, then you can go as low as 3% for the first year. So a buy down would work where the seller pays your closing cost, your, your cost to buy down. There's a certain cal you know, calculator we can use to figure out the cost. Um, they would pay for that and you would get a three, two, one buy down. So in, in year number one, you're at 3.25%. Year number two, you're at 4.25. Year number three, you're at five and a quarter. And then, you know, four and beyond, you're at that six and a quarter note rate. So you can kind of play these, I don't say play the games, but they're creative financing ways, right? With the adjustable rate, you have to have a plan. What's going to happen when it starts to adjust? What do you think the market's going to look like? If you're not going to get out of that loan, then you have to have a plan to deal with the increase you know, when the time comes. Cool. Well, I got a couple more questions for you. Yeah. Uh, this question is pretty general, but what do you feel is the biggest misconception on the mortgage side when it comes to buying a house? How much it costs. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of costs that go into simply getting into the home, getting the mortgage, and then, you know, taking care of the house, you mm -hmm. know? When, when a mortgage company qualifies you and says, okay, you are able to buy a $500,000 house, right? We will go off of your gross income. So if you make $100,000 a year, that's $8,333 per month of gross income, right? And then we, do, we, we don't do any sort of net calculation. So if you're contributing to your 401k, your gasoline, your groceries, your utilities, your oil bill, uh, you know, your vacations, whatever you want to do, all of that stuff, you know, your Netflix that comes out of that usable income, not to mention, you know, we're not looking at payroll taxes, any sort of health insurance, things like that. 
So your $8,333, your $100,000 a year job that we're using to qualify you is actually going to be much less in usable income. So we're going to qualify you based on the mortgage world for more than you can actually afford. Just being completely clear, right? So you want to look at the numbers, right? You want to make sure that your mortgage payment of $3,000 a month, which fits into our guidelines, is comfortable for you, right? If the water heater breaks, if you need to replace the siding, if your you know, insurance on the house, let's say we have a hurricane and your house portion, you know, a tree falls on your house or whatever. Most insurance companies are imp implementing a hurricane deductible of somewhere between two and 5% of the replacement cost of your home. You know, depending on how much house you're buying, you know, that can be 10, 20, $30,000 that you have to come up with to repair your house, right? So these are things that you have to think about beyond the mortgage itself. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. That's the, most, that's the most misunderstood thing. It's not just about that bottom line number. Okay, I'm paying $2,000 in rent. I, I can afford $2,250 on a mortgage, right? And, and own the house. It feels great. That's awesome. You have to make sure that you have that expendable income, right? So you're already talking about an increase, but now you're paying for, let's say you're moving from a, a house or you know an apartment. Um, you have to pay for your own electricity on a much bigger home. You have to heat that home. Right. If you're starting a family and you're introducing children to this, you know, this thing that you're trying to do, daycare, diapers, insanely expensive. Right. Plan ahead for these things um, and make sure that you are able to afford things above and beyond that that number. You have to think of it kind of as a business. Um, I deal with a lot of investors. And one of the things that they do is, you know, capital expense. Right. So if you if you're making three thousand dollars a month on a rental unit and your mortgage costs you twenty five hundred, you've got a five hundred dollar cushion. Right. But you're going to be putting away 10 percent for capital expenses. You're going to put 10 percent away for vacancy, five percent for management. You know, so there are things that you have to do similar to that when you purchase a home. You know, every 10, 20 years, you're going to want to look into replacing things on your house. The water heater goes, the water softening system is, is going to, you know, crap out. Um, you know, the my attic furnace that, that heats my upstairs has been on the fritz for two years. I've been throwing money at the stupid thing. I know I'm going to have to replace it. It's going to cost me eight grand, right? So these are things that are really going to go into home ownership. I don't want to deter anybody from it. I think it's a wonderful thing. It's a great way to build, you know, generational wealth if you handle it the right way, but you have to be uh, able and willing to uh, afford these expenses that come along with it. It's a very big jump from moving from like an apartment to, to a house. You know, you got the law needs to be cut. You know, now are you driving farther to work? It's, it's little things that you don't think of, you know? Absolutely. You that. Yeah. So the final question I have for you, and I ask this question on every podcast, uh, well, it's been, first of all, it's been a great conversation and I appreciate you coming on. So this final Absolutely. question is if you were to leave one piece of advice to the listener, what would that advice be? Always ask questions. Absolutely. Always ask questions, you know, uh, say yes to, to everything, you know, that nobody got, anywhere by saying no, right? You say no to everything, then you're always going to be in the dark. Or you're going to be sitting on your couch doing nothing. You know, don't put yourself at crazy risk, but always give yourself the opportunity to try and, and do that sort of thing. And then always ask questions. You know, mm -hmm. I, I see a lot of people that sit on the sidelines because, you know, they're either saying, I don't understand enough about it, or I'll do it tomorrow or whatever. Ask questions, learn about something that you want to do. And, and it'll take, you'll be so surprised where it takes you. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you for that great advice. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, learning about meteorology and the back end and then getting into mortgages. So uh, a great, you know, interesting conversation. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And for anybody listening and really loves this podcast and you want to get episodes weeks in advance uh, and after, you know, before they're posted on widely available platforms, you can get access early access to episodes for as little as three dollars a month on patreon so definitely think about subscribing uh and if you're really feeling nice and you really want to support the podcast you can pay up to ten dollars a month uh and make sure to follow knowledge is power on instagram and look up john you're on facebook instagram all that stuff no, too all over the place <laughs> all right so i'm sure if you just search his name you can see it there in the bottom corner and it's going to be in the title of the podcast search him up follow him and uh send him emails and ask them questions if you're interested in buying a house. So 
Thank you, John, again. Thank you all for listening, and I will catch you in the next one.